Consider that it's October 27, 1962, a day that would later be designated as Black Saturday by the Kennedy White House. You're a 23-year-old ensign, and you're standing watch on the bridge of the USS Coney. Your vessel is part of what is known as the Hunter-Killer Task Group Alpha, a squadron of eight anti-submarine warfare destroyers, and also the USS Randolph. Your purpose is to hunt down Soviet submarines and to destroy them as part of the naval quarantine of Cuba during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Just a year and a half ago, you graduated from the University of Michigan. After graduation, you immediately attended two months of naval communications and cryptology training, followed by four months of training in shipboard electronics. It was upon completion of this training that you were assigned to the Coney. On this day in 1962, you are serving as the communications officer. Your task group Alpha is operating on the quarantine line about 300 miles southwest of Bermuda. Just a while ago, naval intelligence had identified four Soviet submarines traveling toward Cuba. The subs are sailing in advance of Soviet freighters that are transporting additional nuclear missiles and other arms for Castro's forces. So you know that they're coming, and the commanders have positioned your group at optimal locations to intercept them. It's now five o'clock in the afternoon when the Coney finally acquires its first solid sonar contact. It's the B-59, a Soviet Foxtrot-class diesel submarine. The B-59's captain is a stress-ridden Vitaly Savitsky, and it's later learned that in this moment he feared that they were under attack and ordered his crew to arm its nuclear torpedo. Witnesses aboard the B-59 say Savitsky madly screamed, Maybe the war has already started up there. We're going to blast them now. We, we may die, but we will sink them all first. We will not be the disgrace of our Navy. After four hours of guessing what's going to happen and unable to keep your mind from wondering to the worst-case scenario, the B-59 finally surfaces at 9 o'clock that night after an incredibly tense standoff. And that might be the first deep breath that you've taken since it was first spotted on your sonar. When the Russian submarine breaches the surface, you feel like you've been bathed in her blue and white light. You hear the diesel engines roar to life to recharge the batteries aboard the submarine. You see the main deck hatches beginning to pop open, and you witness the sub's crewmen stream out and strip off their sweat-soaked uniforms. As you set stationed aboard the Coney, you can't help but notice that it seems that the Russians' expressions are that of joy and of relief. As it turns out, you're the only officer aboard the USS Coney trained to communicate with the Russian captain. So you and your lead signal man use your flashing light and Morse code to communicate to the submarine, asking them to identify itself. You feel your chest begin to tighten once again as the Russian captain refuses. Using his flashing light operator, he simply replies back that the sub was Soviet ship X. Then you ask for his status in which he reports on the surface, operating normally. As a customary maritime courtesy, you then ask, Do you require any assistance? 
Savitsky's answer was a curt, Nyet. For the next hour, you and the Russian captain just stare at each other in an uneasy standoff. Suddenly, the tension-filled serenity is disrupted by a gigantic P-2V Neptune plane roaring over the scene. The pilot of the Neptune then drops several incendiary devices to activate his photoelectric camera lenses. The light flashes from these are intense and you're temporarily blinded by the charges and, believing that he was under attack, Savitsky wheels his boat around, bringing his forward torpedo tubes to bear on your ship. You try to remain calm, but the amount of panic that you feel is almost more than you can control. When finally, Savitsky acknowledges your repeated attempts at an apology and begins to close his torpedo tube doors. When things settle down, you're given the orders, whatever you do, keep that Russian happy. And you do just that. You begin to nod your thanks for Savitsky's patience. And surprisingly, the Russian nods back. Then Savitsky signals to you that his crew could use some fresh bread and cigarettes after all. So you arrange for a large parcel of baked bread and American cigarettes to be transferred to the submarine by Highline. As Savitsky's crew retrieves the parcel, he nods his thanks to you as he chugs slowly north, back to Russia. As the B-59 recharges its batteries, the USS Coney follows along. You and Savitsky exchange cordial nods and even a small smile or two along the way. It's well after midnight when you're ordered to call it a night, and after a respectful salute to Savitsky, you retire to your stateroom. The next morning, you see the B-59 being escorted away by another destroyer from your squadron. By the following day, the B-59 had submerged and managed to lose her escort. At that point, all the crew members aboard the USS Coney were sworn to secrecy about the entirety of the B-59 incident. And while you don't necessarily know why, you take your vow of silence very seriously. So much so that for the next 40 years, you will never tell anyone about this incident. This is the story of Gary Slaughter, Naval Communication Officer aboard the USS Coney, as he related it only after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991 when official documents related to the B-59 incident were acquired and it was learned just how close the USS Coney came to being sunk by a Soviet nuclear torpedo. Slaughter concluded his account by saying, I still had no idea that I had faced off with a mad Russian armed with a nuclear torpedo. There is another side to this encounter, a side of which reveals what happened aboard the B-59 Russian submarine, and one that gives frightening insight into just how close we actually were to World War III on this October evening in 1962. At the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis, Soviet submarine commander Vasily Arkhipov had the power to decide whether or not World War III would begin. With the United States and the Soviet Union on the brink of nuclear war, 
1962 Cuban Missile Crisis was one of the tensest moments in modern history. But at the peak of the crisis, one Soviet naval officer managed to keep a cool head and avert nuclear devastation. Most people today may not know the name Vasily Arkhipov, but after learning his story, you'd be hard-pressed to say that he didn't, in fact, save the world. After weeks of U.S. intelligence gathering that pointed toward a Soviet arms buildup in Cuba, the inciting incident came on October 14th when an American spy plane flying over the island photographed missile sites under construction. With Cuba a mere 90 miles from the U.S. mainland, missiles launched from there would be able to strike most of the eastern United States within a matter of minutes. The Soviets and their fellow communist allies in Cuba had secretly reached a deal to place those missiles on the island in July. The Soviets wanted to shore up their nuclear strike capabilities against the U.S., which had recently placed missiles in Turkey, bordering the Soviet Union, as well as Italy. And the Cubans wanted to prevent the Americans from attempting another invasion of this island, like the unsuccessful one they'd launched in April of 1961. Whatever reasons the Soviets and Cubans had, the Americans now needed to deal with this perceived threat to their national security. President Kennedy decided against a direct attack on Cuba, opting instead for a blockade around it to prevent Soviet ships from accessing it, which he announced on October 22nd. He then presented the Soviets with an ultimatum, demanding that they remove the nuclear missiles from Cuba. Through a series of tense negotiations over the coming days, the Americans and the Soviets worked out a deal to end the conflict. By October 28th, the Americans had agreed to remove their missiles from Turkey, and the Soviets had agreed to remove their missiles from Cuba. But while the two countries' leaders were handling the negotiations, they were largely unaware of a much more precarious situation that was going on below the surface in the Caribbean. Soviet naval officer Vasily Arkhipov, who was 34 at the time, was one of three commanders aboard the B-59 submarine near Cuba on October 27th. They had received an order from Soviet leadership to stop in the Caribbean short of the American blockade around Cuba. They were to then dive deep to conceal their presence after being spotted by the Americans. Once spotted, and then disappearing, the hopes to relocate the sub by the U.S. Navy were centered around dropping non-lethal depth charges in hopes of forcing the vessel to the surface. What the U.S. Navy didn't realize was that the B-59 was armed with a nuclear torpedo, one that they'd been instructed to use without waiting for approval if their submarine or if their Soviet homeland was under fire. Cut off from communication with the outside world, the panicked Soviet sailors feared that they were now under attack. From what little they knew of what was happening above the surface, it seemed possible that nuclear war had already broken out. With tensions running high and the air conditioning out, the conditions inside the sub had began to deteriorate quickly as the crew grew ever more fearful. As one man on board wrote in his journal, For the last four days, they didn't even let us come up to periscope depth. My head is bursting from stuffy air. Today, Three sailors fainted from overheating again. The regeneration of air works poorly, and the carbon dioxide content is rising, and the electric power reserves are dropping. Those who are free from their ships are sitting immobile, staring at one spot. Temperatures in this section is above 50 degrees Celsius, or 122 degrees Fahrenheit. 
As the B-59 shook with repeated depth charges on either side, one of the three captains, Valentin Savitsky, decided that they had no choice but to launch their nuclear torpedo. Savitsky had his men ready the onboard missile, which was as strong as the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima, planning to aim it at a U.S. blockade. As we learned earlier, the Russian captain wanted to fire their torpedo. However, Savitsky needed the approval of both of the other two captains aboard the sub before launching the weapon. The second captain, Ivan Maslenikov, approved the strike, but Arkhipov said no. Somehow keeping a level head in the midst of chaos, Arkhipov reportedly managed to convince Savitsky that the Americans were not actually attacking them and that they were only firing depth charges in order to get the Soviets' attention and merely to draw them to the surface. Fortunately, Arkhipov was right. The submarine, once surfaced and once satisfied that all-out war had not actually been taking place, turned around and went on its way. As we learned about earlier in this episode, the Americans wouldn't find out until decades later that the submarine had been carrying a nuclear missile. Had Vasily Arkhipov not been there to prevent the torpedo launch, historians agree that nuclear war would most likely have begun at that time. Had it been launched, the Guardian wrote, the fate of the world would have been very different. The attack would have probably started a nuclear war, which would have caused global devastation with unimaginable numbers of civilian deaths. Nevertheless, Arkhipov and his comrades faced criticism from Soviet leaders who thought that the B-59 should have never risen to the surface and revealed itself after the Americans dropped the depth charges. However, Vasily Arkhipov remained in the Soviet Navy until the 1980s and eventually died at the age of 72 in 1998. His heroic moment during the Cuban Missile Crisis didn't become public knowledge until 2002. It was then that former Soviet officer Vadim Orlov, who was on the B-59 with Arkhipov, revealed what had happened on that fateful day 40 years before when one man most likely saved the world. <laughs>